This is The Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that the following episode may contain the names and voices of people who are deceased. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the many lands across Australia and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise our enduring connection to the lands and waterways of this country and thank them for protecting and maintaining this country for us and future generations. In this series, our host Cameron Edwards interviews deadly physios from around Australia. And by deadly, we mean something that is awesome or fantastic. So join us as we have a yarn and enjoy some deadly stories. Yama. And welcome to another episode of The Deadly Physios. We are so glad you could join us today and listening to this incredible lady, this incredible leader. We have Catherine Potter with us today, the new chair of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Committee. Katie is known to me very well and I'm excited for you to all get to hear her story. But before we start, I want to pay my respects to the Darug mob on whose land I'm recording from today and welcome you all to look at the traditional custodians of the land on which you're listening from today as well and to pay respects as you listen. Katie, how are you going today? And tell us a little bit about where you're talking to us from and uh, who's your mob? Yeah, I'm Mark Cameron. I'm doing well, thank you. I'm a Camilleroy woman. My mob is from Bogabilla and Tumala area. The Camilleroy Nation is from the south part of Queensland down into New South Wales to give people a little bit of idea where that sits. It's quite a big nation. I also have bloodlines to the Yuan nation, which is further south again in New South Wales. I wasn't born on country. I was born and raised on Turrbal Nyagara country and currently live in Yugambeh country. So that's in Logan, southeast Queensland. You know what's really cool? And I definitely don't script the introductions or anything like that, but it is so true that I look up to you as a leader, not just in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, but just in your own right. And I am so excited to work closely with you, actually, and have you as a sister and uh, very excited about some projects that we're working on in the future. But before we go on, I want to know what makes you a deadly physio? Thank you for those kind words, Cameron. I don't think I could ever be considered a leader if I didn't respect to the people that I was working with. So I think that um, being amongst all of you helps to fuel that. I believe what makes me a deadly physiotherapist is that despite the generational experiences that we've had and the disparity faced by my family, that our ancestors have maintained strength and resilience and allowed me to travel the path as a physiotherapist that I do today. And I guess knowing this, I will always remain compassionate and courageous in what I do and trying to do this as a legacy to those who have strived so hard for us and what we've achieved today and also to continue to work hard so that we can keep our culture and our country strong for everybody to enjoy. Well, I have to say that is a deadly answer. No man is an island as that saying goes and no woman is an island and so Here you are, Katie, like you said, a product of your ancestors and also those around you. But in your own right, you're a pretty amazing person as well. And those kind words, as you say at the beginning, were not said without careful thought. 
you certainly are amazing. Talking about the the journey that led you to physiotherapy, you are a well-established physiotherapist. It's not like you're a new grad or anything like that. Talk us back through that journey to actually becoming a physiotherapist. Why did you choose physio? I've shared this story with the APA before, so it's not something that I'm shy to talk about. I think it illustrates a lot of the barriers to education that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people actually experience. So when I was going through high school, I really like had a passion for all things science and the human body. So they were the subjects that I excelled in. Otherwise, high school was quite difficult for me. I didn't have any, my parents didn't finish high school. There wasn't a lot of uh, push for us to go you know, to finish school, to go to university, and not because it wasn't important, but just because there was no experience there. Although my parents always supported me as they knew I was really determined. Not all my brothers and sisters graduated from high school either, and so my parents supported the path that everybody took. In high school, I remember speaking in our form group when we were talking about our career paths, And I mentioned that I wanted to be a physiotherapist. So I believe that that was because of my experiences in sport and having my own injuries, a typical story. And I was really embarrassed in class because someone said in front of the whole class that I wasn't smart enough. And and other people say, you won't even get to university. One of my sisters was also told from the guidance counsellor, there was no point in her trying to go to university. It wasn't going to achieve anything for her. And this is just the racism that we experience, which is quite sad. So those who know me know I'm pretty stubborn and determined. So (laughs) I never think that I shouldn't be able to do something if I have the passion for it. So I did go to uni. I didn't do too badly in high school in the end. And I actually went into science. So I studied a major in ecology. And I did that for a few years before I realised wasn't quite where I should be and it was only in university where my colleagues there my friends there that I had made were a lot more um, embracing I guess and they and understanding and they they were the first ones to talk to me about upgrading so no one had ever ever mentioned this to me through any of the high school that that was a possibility to enter into physiotherapy I had no idea that that existed and they said go for it so these friends that I'd made and they were quite mature age students that I was friends with at QUT when I did science so I was really grateful for that so I did I, I went and transferred uni so I went to do human movements first because to transfer unis my score wasn't as what it needed to be um, compared to the UQ and so I had to go to part-time in human movements so that I could keep working as well And then after doing two years part-time, I was able to upgrade into physiotherapy and all all went from there. And and I couldn't think of anything worse than doing sports (laughs) physiotherapy. So even though it was something I thought was what I wanted to do, I I fell in love with uh, women's, men's and pelvic health and respiratory physio. I love rehabilitation. Um, nearly everything else <laughs> musculoskeletal and sports <laughs> I used to think I'd be the physio for the Brazilian soccer team <laughs> when I was in high school so that dramatically changed <laughs> there is so many important themes in that story and such is life uh, uh, it is a common thread 
through many people's journey through physiotherapy degrees that they find out that there's so much more to physiotherapy, but so many deep and hurtful themes during those school years. And it's so interesting that you mentioned this barriers to education. It, it almost just occurred to me that, that the barriers to education are really twofold or two-sided, that there is almost this pushing down or this suppression of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander education about our history, etc., but also towards students who are trying to excel, whether or not that is a widespread thing. But it just occurred that this is really a two-way street, that non-Indigenous people also have barriers to education, but that education is specifically around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and, and these inequalities that exist in education that you've just outlined. I have to say, I don't think anyone could meet you and doubt the passion that you have to push forward despite any obstacles or naysayers. So we're all glad that you're part of the profession now. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about the journey you've had since joining the profession. Where have you worked? And you mentioned your passions. What, what's happening now? I've had a really broad experience, I would say. Um, a few years ago, I spoke to some fourth year students at one of the universities up north in Queensland and I remember then just reflecting and going well there is a lot you can do in physio and I, I let them know that too yeah. so I guess even though I've worked for the public health system since I graduated actually I started as a indigenous physiotherapy cadet so I actually worked for Queensland Health during the last few years of my studies and then went straight into public health from there. So I uh, in the government system, and I, I haven't ever left. Even though I've done other jobs along the way, I've always had a job there. So I started in Toowoomba Hospital. That was in the summer period from when you graduate and when you're allowed to start working. And then a new grad position was um, offered to me at the Princess Alexandra Hospital. And so that involved... A number of rotations so I got to work in rehabilitation, cardiorespiratory, I got to work in the children's hospital and then went out west and I went to Charleville and Kanamala and uh, Thargaminda and never looked back. That, that just changed my life. I had no idea how much I would love working out in those areas. So when I got back to the PA I decided not to go for a permanent position so the new grad position was just one year. I actually looked more local I was living in Logan and Logan was a much smaller hospital now it's it's not so small anymore and I got a job working at Logan Hospital and Bow Desert Hospital and Bow Desert uh, even though it's not as remote as those other places it just just had that same sort of feel. So even though the tertiary hospital gave me a lot of good exposure I really loved the feel of those smaller places. Also, because at uni, I had a real strong affinity for the women's health subjects, which was quite surprising to my whole family because I'm not maternal in any way. <laughs> and, the, and they laughed because my sister used to want me to feel her belly and look at her belly, my older sister, and I used to freak out. I couldn't, didn't want to, <laughs> I couldn't look at it. And she's like, how did you get into this job? And I was like, I don't know, something just changed, but it just made so much sense. So um, because at the PA there wasn't any women's health service, I actually sought a casual job 
in a private practice that provided women's health physiotherapy so that I could see if it was something that I, I actually would like to work in. So when I went to Logan Hospital, that's what I did. I did part-time women's health at the time. It wasn't a full women's men's and pelvic health service and uh, worked in cardiorespiratory for the other part of the time and I did that for a while. Then I became the service manager in the Women's Men's and Pelvic Health Service at Logan. So that was full time. Um, I was acting in that position while the leader was on maternity leave. And then that continued to grow. I was the lady who led the project for the pelvic health clinic and able to help seven other sites across Queensland get the primary contact clinic in pelvic health up and running uh, with funding, which is fantastic. And that just keeps continuing to grow. So I'm so proud of that work. And all in the background in this time, I was also working on my product, which I hope it's okay to mention. Please do. I've designed a respiratory device named TheraBubble, which is a bubble pep. So that actually came about to me when I was a student and in my first year of physio. And that's when I had the idea and wanted to work on that. So during... The growth in my physio career I'd spoken to one of my colleagues and she was all for it too and so we started working on that as we were both progressing in our career. So we started that business and we both still continued as full-time physiotherapists and then the business just kept growing and it got to a point where I was like oh I can't juggle both of these anymore so I asked if I could take a year off with leave without pay and and to see whether I could keep growing the business if it would be viable for me to do that with an intent to grow it enough that I could step back and go back into my physiotherapy role and that worked really well so the hospital was really supportive and so I'm forever grateful for that. I uh, came back then and instead of continuing in the leadership role in the pelvic health clinic I moved into some more research Research was something that they really wanted to have more presence in the allied health in Logan Hospital and Metro South, so the bigger HHS that we're part of. And a few of the allied health professions had set research positions, but physiotherapy didn't. So I spoke with my boss and said, if this is still something that you're keen for, then I'm happy to trial a position if if you think we can facilitate that. And if it's working, then, you know, look to get something permanent. So she was a real change maker and you know I was so grateful to have been under her leadership for so many years she's she's retired now but she has helped grow a lot of the physiotherapists that I know so yeah I was participating in facilitating research so not necessarily doing research myself but that was part of the role but helping to translate research inside women's men's and pelvic health and helping to encourage research activity in our area and then seeing what collaboration we could have with the other allied health professions. So that did lead me to being involved in a few projects and also then being invited through some other members of the APA to do some research external to Queensland Health. And so that was uh, doing some respiratory stuff in the top end, so that was really lovely. I was about to start a PhD before... COVID hit right before it you had everything ready to submit and you know so we had everything lined up all the supervisors lined up Uh, then COVID came and it really just put everything tipped everything on its head in terms of being able to do that research 
So we, we sat on it and waited and waited and because it did require access to a lot of remote areas around Australia. And then we had discussions about changing the topics. There was discussions with other universities around options as well, but I declined those waiting for this particular PhD to come to fruition. And only just recently, because it, it, the project scope did have to change, I, I did decide not to progress with it. So that was a hard decision to make, but I thought if I was going to dedicate myself to it, that it would have to be the topic in totality of something that I was you know, truly passionate about the whole raft. So because there was a bit of change, it just I just couldn't commit eight years when I knew that I could do a lot of other things in eight years that would be more what I was aligned with, you know. So yeah, so there's a, a good indication that you can do lots of things in physiotherapy. <laughs> Work private, public, be a manager, be on the ground, do some research, start a business. Absolutely. I think there is definitely a well-rounded story there and it's almost like I have to take a breath and if it was an interview, you've got the the overqualified person where there's, there's just so much <laughs> in there to pick apart and you know, my heart goes out to the researchers and, and those, you know, early career researchers or, you know, people considering doing PhDs because it would have been difficult during COVID. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that we need to support innovation and support entrepreneurs, especially when it is a physiotherapist, because we're creating for physiotherapists, you know, it's by physiotherapists. And even the other day, someone mentioned that they're a bubble and I said, oh, I know someone who worked on that and have to say that your work has even reached down here in New South Wales Health. So an absolutely shameless plug and we're so proud of you for everything that you've done there. And and to give us a bit of an insight on that journey, it's, it's inspiring, inspiring for other people who are seeking to use their, their minds for something more than just the immediate, you know, one-to-one contact with a patient, but, you know, thinking of devices, et cetera. Before I go on, you did mention something right at the beginning about a cadetship. Just wondering if you could explain what the cadetship is for anyone who is seeking to hire or inspire young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who may be interested in health or physiotherapy. There are some alternative pathways to help people with those barriers experienced in in being able to attend university and, and get into the professional world. And so the, the cadetship that I did is a bit different to what exists today, but they're very similar foundations. Mine was through Queensland Health and what it involved was a paid position for me to work 12 weeks a year during my study at one of the hospitals. So I was working at Toowoomba Hospital, which saw me in rehabilitation, um, the acute wards, and also out in the Bailey Henderson Hospital, which is a hospital for mental health conditions. Sometimes we would go six weeks here, six weeks there, but across the year I could fit it into the breaks as, as we could. I did that for three years, so the last three years of my physiotherapy degree. And in turn, they also provided me then with some... Um, funding to help me get through the university year so helped me to buy textbooks and meant that I didn't have to work as often so when I was studying ecology and human movements and the first year of physio I never bought textbooks I just could not afford them 
I worked like at least four days a week, including the weekends, you know, and and after hours, uh, if not more, to be able to pay my way to get through uni, you know, just to pay rent and, and transport. And there were some days I couldn't even afford to get to university, you know, like it's that sad. So the cadetship really changed that. I could actually concentrate on studying more. So I think it really helped me to thrive in the uh, physiotherapy degree. And then to get that actual exposure in the hospitals was amazing. And it definitely was something I enjoyed. So I didn't work as a physiotherapist during the student years. I worked kind of in a gray area between an allied health assistant and a physiotherapist. It also meant at the time that uh, we could be transferred to a permanent position within Queensland Health. So starting in the area we worked, so Toowoomba Hospital, and then you could apply for transfers with other positions as they became available as per the general transfer rules in in different organisations. It was really effective. I actually went through with two other women were in Toowoomba with me. One was an OT and another was a physiotherapist. And then another uh, lady I knew was a physiotherapist doing the same thing at Ipswich Hospital. And as far as I'm aware today, when I still see things about them on social media, they're all still in the public system. Not not all in Queensland Health, some in New South Wales, but it's obviously done what it intended to do, which was to increase the allied health workforce who Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander which in turn helps the cultural capability of our workforce, which in turn makes the services more approachable and provides then services that the community actually needs and feels safe to access. So I think it was fantastic. I cannot speak more highly of that program. Today, their program is still run, but it is funded through AFL Sports Ready. Um, So you can direct people to look into that. And it, I believe, is a bit more flexible with um, private practice as well, being able to get exposure in private practice. So there's still some cadetships around. There is still some in the public systems as well. I'm not sure what exists in the other states, but uh, there's certainly some in Queensland in the public system and in different professions, not just allied health. But I think we should all be pushing for them in our areas that we work for our physiotherapy colleagues. You and I have worked closely and I know your passion and your exploration around the power of words and the power of names. So I'm going to present to you on our segment of You Can't Ask That a question and it's potentially an inflammatory one, but it's something that some people say and that's, you know, that there's no wrong or right name for Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders and if I want to call them abos or bongs then that's fine. I would like to hear your response to that. Could you just hear me take a huge inhale? (laughs) That was my immediate response Cam. It's just it is disheartening. We are in a world where we are needing to really understand diversity and embrace diversity and to think that this is still language that's commonly used and used with such disrespect as well. I was on country with my cousin who does a lot to impart cultural knowledge to me and we were there and another gentleman came up and we were talking about just different fishing, you know, we're at a local river and he mentioned the word coon to us 
this was like two years ago um, or just before COVID, so just after two years ago. And we just looked at each other and, you know, my cousin, I just learned so much from him and he said, you know, I'm a really proud Camilla man and that's just not appropriate language and just shut it down, you know, and I was so proud of him because it takes a lot of bravery. Sometimes you don't feel safe to speak up as well. And then we just, he just felt like he really didn't respect us. And my cousin said to him, hey, you know, and my cousin was still as beautiful and generous as always. And he said to him, hey, we've caught these fish. We can't eat all of these. Would you like some? And the man said, only if you scale them for me, otherwise I couldn't be bothered. I was just like, what a horrible person. (laughs) And and my cousin was just, just maintained his... Is it humility? I'm just trying to think of the word, you know, his poise. And I just thought, okay, well, you know, this is what we deal with. And, you know, that's a real direct form of racism. But there is a lot of indirect racism that occurs. There's a lot of misunderstanding even of why certain groups are needing some additional things to help with equality. And people think that Aboriginal people are getting handouts and this and that. They just do not understand why supports are needed. And, you know, there's a lot of institutional racism around that as well. So, you know, I just, you just think, are we, are we not past that yet? You know, um, and I really hope that in the future during my time on this earth that I do see some really, well, I have seen a lot of positive change, but I hope to see more Cam, you know, like it just is so upsetting. I, uh, I did hear the sigh <laughs> and I do hear the heartache and it was hard to say. Even a, a lot of these questions are actually just hard to say, but they're things that you hear and it's not, I don't ask them because they're kind of fringe or anything like that. I have to say, I, I've never heard the word abo ever used with a positive connotation or twist at the end. It's almost like the word precedes a racist comment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know that we need to, you know, take it as a positive. Like, I don't know that it's shortened version should ever be accepted either, you know. Like some words I think, hey, you know, they were a word and you can use them. You shouldn't associate that connotation with something else that is just a word. But this, I don't think ABO ever came about because, you know, it came about as a derogatory term, so... I don't think it should ever be embraced by us as something to celebrate, you know, like we would say even uh, even people, um, there's some mobs that don't like the word Aboriginal because they say that's a, even a white man's word for us, you know. It's tough. Most most people are comfortable to be known as Aboriginal, but not everybody. So, you know, some people are uh, only prefer to be known as their nation's person. So I hear I've heard a lot of strength in that from people I've met in WA and Northern Territory where they say we're not Aboriginal, we are and you know, say their clan's name. So interesting, you know? I think that's a pretty good full stop on it. Just don't use it. <laughs> <laughs> and address people the way that they uh that they ask to be. Katie, I wanna ask you a little bit about another big topic mm-hmm. and uh that's reconciliation and closing the gap. You can't come to the table to learn about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health without hearing these two phrases, words, and I'm wondering what they mean to you personally. What do they draw up in your spirit? I think if I jump to the 
big picture thinking. I think what we need to help people to understand is why we would even be striving for this. And and in my heart, I believe that is to ensure that we have true equality with everyone that we are living with on this earth and to particularly understand the quality of life that we can have by having the peers walk with us who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander that show us everything that they know and understand because I think that their knowledge helps to increase the quality of life for other people. And so I feel that that should be what's driving it, that people should go, hey, this culture is amazing and we will be much happier on this earth if we actually want to understand this culture and respect this culture and learn to live by some of these laws. You know, it's just, to me, the way we were meant to be on this earth. So to get to that, I think that reconciliation to me is a balance so understanding the differences and despite those differences being able to live in harmony and and it is a true respect of those differences and the values that those differences bring so not just saying I will tolerate that difference but rather I will value that difference and what that can bring to my experience while I'm on this planet so I guess closing the gap is you know, I had another 40-minute conversation, but, you know, they're all intertwined. You can't separate it out to be able to work to reconciliation or even conciliation, people argue, is that um, we need to make sure that our people are experiencing the best health and well-being possible. Otherwise, they won't be able to show their full potential. They won't have their full self-determination. That is a, a right, human right. And without that, then their voices just won't be heard in terms of living in that balance and harmony. So to me, the closing the gap is going to achieve that, you know, achieve the maintenance of our culture and our people and regrow. They're always strong, but so regrow their voice and their presence. A fantastic answer and, again, so much wisdom in it in that it is a personal matter but there is also public or, or larger picture goals that have to happen and occur and I, I love this idea of valuing differences. Now, Katie, we have already talked a little bit about your passion and we like to joke about that fire within you <laughs> and I want to know, I want to know, what is your dream? What what would be your call to action for our non-Indigenous listeners? And, you know, I just think of that, that whole imperative or that impetus to change. What would your dream be if you could articulate that for us? Okay, it's, it's, I don't ever want to say it's not possible, but I feel like with the uh, development that we have in our world, my dream is impossible. I look back and look at our history of thousands of years of living in harmony with the planet and, you know, there's First Nations people around the world who have done this and we are the oldest living nation in Australia who have done this. And I believe, you know, there was innovation. You know, there's some books that you can read that talk about some of the innovation in um, housing and what do you call it, horticulture, things like that. But I don't think it was 
like a really large innovation and I remember someone wrote on Facebook once oh yeah you think you're so your culture's so strong yet you couldn't even invent the wheel and I was just gobsmacked by that and I thought you know why we didn't invent the wheel because we didn't need the wheel so I'm sure if we needed a wheel uh, living with country that someone would have come up with the wheel to me I don't know I wasn't there as Catherine Potter is today I'm sure I was there in some form but we could live with what the planet provided for us and we only took what we need so you know, we didn't need to come up with these things to build skyscrapers and, and whatever and to drive across the country as quick as possible. So in that answer, and then also thinking about remembering that I talked about loving science and my big passion was in biology and ecology, my dream would be that we could live back like we did with the ancestors. And people have argued with me and said, you wouldn't give up everything to be able to do that and I said I can guarantee you I would in a heartbeat if I knew it was sustainable. One of the movies I loved was a documentary by David Google who has um, sadly passed away just recently and he was expressing how in the Northern Territory how a group of people were all moved to a mission so there was you know 10 times the amount of people that should be on that one piece of land and People said, if you want to live traditionally, then live traditionally. And he said, but we can't. Our food source does not feed a 1,000 people. It might have fed a 100. So we can catch as many kangaroos as we want, but there's not enough kangaroos around this area for us. This is me sort of paraphrasing what was shown in that documentary. The waterways were completely changed. So the uh, ecosystem that the waterways provided, you know, just changed everything else. And I see that when I go down to country and there's a weir that we go to and it's called Cunningham's Weir. Um, that was named from colonisation, but we actually call it Bebo Weir, which is the place that it's in. And the weir just stops all the yellow bellies from their natural breeding cycles and there's just carp everywhere and turtles everywhere. The turtles are okay, but the carp is introduced and then um, one day when I was there on country with my cousin, all this froth and everything coming through the waterways and and I couldn't understand what it was. And my cousin explained to me it was all the runoff from all the farms. So only when the water overflows does the yellow belly have a bit of a chance, but all the carp are eating all the yellow bellies, babies, you know, and it's just so horrible. So to think that, you know, if I had a chance to live on country in a true old traditional sense I don't think that the um, country could sustain us because it's just not thriving the way that it should. Well Katie you've summed up so much over this episode and we're coming to the end and we want to get to know Katie personally and so we've got a couple of quick questions to ask to round out this episode. Let's start with, what's your favourite Indigenous word and what does it mean? Ah, oh, well, I would love to share with the audience that I am going to be increasing my repertoire of my own language and studying with the deadly Cameron. Um, so we're going to be learning more of our Gamilaroi language. But my favourite word is a Gamilaroi word saying Yalu. It is informally... Uh, it's, I guess, formally means again, but informally used as a see you again. So goodbye for now, but not goodbye forever. 
and and I just love that notion of you know I will see you again it's never a permanent goodbye and even when talking about the cycle of life and death and life I think that it translates really beautifully into considering that our ancestors are in some form around us from thousands of years ago so no one has ever gone we're just in different forms I even use it when I was saying goodbye to some of my recent family who's passed you know and and I just think it's so important to make sure that people are comfortable and know that their spirit will live on in a different way which I know lots of religions have different beliefs about what that is but uh, as Aboriginal women and the spirituality that comes with that I, I believe that we come back into a, um, our energy is transformed into something else in the in the earth. Now the next question and I am looking forward to studying language more with you the next question I've got for you is what is one word that sums up to you what reconciliation and closing the gap looks like? Peaceful. Peaceful I think that's a pretty it's succinct, isn't it? But it's uh, it's powerful. Mm, that just the first thing that comes to mind, yeah. And the final question I've got of this episode is: What is your favorite Indigenous artist or band of choice, and why have you chosen a song by them that our listeners can go and look up? If I have to pick a musician or songwriter, I would actually say that. The music I really thoroughly enjoy listening to or the songs is when um, hearing people welcome you to country or learning and hearing your uh, family sing some traditional songs. So I think there's nothing more beautiful. But if we're talking about contemporary, I would say Gurmal. If you watch some things about him, it's just a beautiful story and um, his music is just so heartfelt. You, you can't help but feel emotional when listening to it and listening to him sing in language. I agree, Katie. I think there is nothing more powerful than singing in language. And, and there are some contemporary artists who, who do weave in their language and it is a beautiful thing. Now, that leads us to the end of our episode. And I want to say on behalf of the Deadly Physios, Yalu, you know, we're going to see you again, Katie, and we're, we're looking forward. And I'm sure the listeners will be looking forward to following your journey as the new chair of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Committee, but also seeing what you do in the future and within physiotherapy. Your passion has certainly come across today, and we thank you for that. Thank you very much for having me, Cameron. Yalu. Thanks for listening to The Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. To learn more about this episode's guest and the Deadly Physio series, head to our website at australian.physio forward slash the deadly physios. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review.